0: Hello, and welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Before we get started this week, I'd like to address something that I said last week. It's in regards to when I was talking about the origin of the dollar sign. What I said at the time was that the dollar sign originated from a symbol on the piece of eight, which represented the pillars of Hercules, being the two dashes, and the hemispheres of the globe, represented by an S, Now, this is a theory that has been postulated by many historians, and really, the symbolism is just too good. Unfortunately, it's too good to be true. A listener who goes by the name of Funkmon pointed out that this isn't necessarily the general consensus among scholars on the subject. There are a few other theories on where the dollar sign originated. Another one that I like is that it was a simple symbol 8 with a line drawn through it to symbolize a piece of 8. And that goes to explain the single slash dollar sign. However, the consensus among historians seems to be that it was a much more simple and less symbolic answer than that. There was a shorthand at the time used to represent the Spanish peso, which was a large P followed by a very small S, which eventually was merged into just a P and S, and then eventually just an S with a line drawn through it. This is generally accepted to be the origin of the dollar sign by most historians, so i just like to go ahead and correct that. If anybody out there has any questions or concerns about anything that I say, I urge you to get in contact with me. Either leave a comment on the episode at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can email me at thepiratehistorypodcast at gmail.com. I really take all of your questions and comments seriously, and I'd like to address any issues any of you might have. And once again, let me thank Funkmon for bringing this to my attention. Now, without further ado, let's get to episode number four, Old Europe on Fire. Today we're going to be talking about the Catholic Church, the Reformation in Europe, in Germany, Switzerland, what's called the Low Countries, and even in England. And we're going to be talking about the political upheaval that this caused, as well as the spiritual and social effect that this had on the lives of the people living in these countries. Perhaps, though, a bit of explanation is required. This is, after all, a show about high seas adventure and swashbuckling piracy. And so far, we've talked about exploration, a lot of politics, and today we're going to be getting into religion. And as we all know, politics and religion are two topics that are not polite to talk about around the dinner table. So why are we going into this? Well, of course, religion has been a key factor in the lives of essentially every person and every society that's ever existed on Earth. But for the pirates in the Caribbean, around the beginning of the 1700s, it wasn't only an important force, it was a contentious one. Because of the events we're going to be talking about today, there were two rival factions of Christians. In Europe, but also in the Caribbean. And in Europe, you had national boundaries that could protect you. You knew that if you were in, say, parts of what would become Germany, you could be safe. But if you were to just move over into parts of France, you could be killed. However, in the Caribbean, you could be on an island that was owned by the English and be safe, were you a Protestant. But you could be merely a couple days sailing away, even less, from an area that was controlled by Catholics, who likely wanted your head because of the religion you followed. Beyond that, there were many actual wars and conflicts that weren't called wars during this time that were based entirely around the issue of religion. And so many of these Catholic and Protestant sailors and soldiers had a deep-seated hatred for people on the other side. Many people that we're going to be talking about in a very short amount of time, people like Sir Francis Drake and Captain Henry Morgan, and even onto people like Benjamin Hornigold, Well, they were people who saw themselves not as pirates, but as people on a religious and political war against the other side. So, for the people who were engaging in piracy in the Caribbean, religion was a highly important factor. And here is where all that conflict started. I'd like to introduce that conflict with a quote from Winston Churchill. This comes from his multi-volume work, A History of the English-Speaking Peoples, this is from volume two of that work, subtitled The New World. Quote, We have now reached the dawn of what is called the 16th century, which means all the years in the hundred years that begins with 15. The name is inevitable in English, but confusing. It covers a period in time in which extraordinary changes affected the whole of Europe. Some had been on the move for a long time, but sprang into full operative force at this moment. For two hundred years or more the Renaissance had been stirring the thought and spirit of Italy and now came forth in the vivid revival of the traditions of ancient Greece and Rome in so far as these did not affect the foundations of the christian faith. The popes had, in the meanwhile, become temporal rulers, with the lusts and pomps of other potentates, yet they claimed to carry with them the spiritual power as well. The revenues of the church were swelled by the sale of indulgences, to remit purgatory both for the living and the dead. The offices of bishop and cardinal were bought and sold, and the common people taxed to the limit of their credulity. These and other abuses in the organization of the church were widely recognized and much resented, but as yet they went uncorrected. End quote. Hmm. What an excellent quote. It really gives just a perfect introduction to everything that we're going to be talking about today, and sums up almost every point that I'm going to be trying to touch on. However, there is one key thing that I think it lacks. It doesn't go into any detail about the key role that the church played in Europe during the Middle Ages, which I think is kind of important to understand today's story to its fullest. The Catholic Church was, during the time of the Roman Empire, part of a tripod that held the empire up. There was, of course, the Roman Church, there was the Roman imperial bureaucracy, and then there were the legions. But when the fall of Rome came, really, those other two pillars, besides the church, fell away. The church was left all throughout Europe, trying to tend to the spiritual needs of its flock, without any support at all. So it had to work from scratch to build that support. It did so by allying itself with various tribes who were vying for control of the European continent. There were some very big alliances, such as the one between the Franks and the Catholic Church that wound up creating what we know of today as the Holy Roman Empire. It even managed to hold on quite strongly in some places, but in Gaul and the former province of Hispania, which would have been the Iberian Peninsula, even in Britannia, which was the farthest flung part of the empire to the north, and that was subsequently invaded by pagan barbarians, the Anglo-Saxon invasions, which threatened to wipe out the Catholic Church there entirely, but they managed to hold on and ally themselves with people who were likely to come out on top. And somehow, all of these people did. Now, of course, the Catholic Church had a lot to offer. They had, really, the only schools that were left in Europe. If you were going to get any sort of formal health care anywhere in Europe, it was going to be a church facility. They also had a Massive communications network between dioceses that if any of these strong men who intended to be king were to actually rule, they were going to need to make use of that communications network. Perhaps even the most important point was the Roman church had on their side the Roman god. Many of these barbarians were, before this, pagans following perhaps the Norse religion. They would have made sacrifices to Odin and Thor. But their enemies, the people they were fighting, were frequently people making sacrifices to the same two gods. So if they could ingratiate themselves with the church, then they would have the ear of the god of Rome, a god who had helped build the most powerful empire in the world that these Germanic peoples had never been able to conquer. And it seemed to work out because people who had allied themselves with the church usually wound up on top. And in many cases, these kingdoms that they began are the foundations for many of Europe's modern countries even today. The church was central in their birth. However, the church had to ingrain itself into the civilization of Europe. They had to make themselves indispensable to the European way of life. And they did so fantastically. The church was there at every major life event you had. When you were born, the church was there to baptize you. When you were married, the church was there to marry you. When your children were born, they were there to baptize your children. And when you died, the church was there to bury you. Not only was the church central to the lives of the people in Europe, they were central to the aristocracy as well. See, people in Spain and the Holy Roman Empire didn't speak the same language. However, they were able to communicate by using Latin. They used Latin, the language of Rome, because that was what was taught and the church schools. So really, they had recreated those three pillars of the Roman Empire. The church still existed, but they had recreated government, and through the armies of these different nations, they had recreated the legions, which they could call upon at any time if they needed to defend themselves or go fight the Muslims in a crusade. That's not to say that there wasn't conflict, though. There definitely was. Even at the outset of the Holy Roman Empire, their first major alliance. The leader of the Holy Roman Empire, Charlemagne, was in constant conflict with Rome, vying for control. The Holy Roman Empire has had a great tradition of conflict with Rome. One of their later Holy Roman emperors, Frederick Barbarossa, he even went so far as to elevate a personally chosen pope of his own in defiance of the one in Rome. He didn't like the way that the Roman pope was doing business which was exactly what the Roman Church had become, a business. You could go so far as to consider all the nations of Europe subsidiary companies. To their parent company, the Catholic Church, and the Pope was its CEO. And the Church had thusly become extremely wealthy. They owned massive tracts of land from which they collected rent, They collected forced tithes from every citizen in Europe. Now, you might picture them passing the hat and giving whatever they could. However, a tithe was a forced tax. You had to give a certain amount of money. And if you weren't able to give a certain amount of money, it wasn't just your soul that was in peril. The secular authorities would get involved. Your life could very well be in peril. Due to how well the church was doing, the church and its popes had developed really expensive tastes. Throughout the Middle Ages, popes were growing wealthier and wealthier, and they even started fighting to keep the papacy a familial dynastic tradition. They had palaces that these families owned. They had extraordinarily large quantities of gold. Popes had mistresses, and they even threw parties that would make even the most decadent Roman emperor blush. Despite the fact that they were making huge amounts of money, they needed to raise revenues somehow. And they decided to do that through the sale of indulgences. An indulgence was a papal decree that allowed your soul to move past purgatory and on to heaven. Purgatory was a place where, well, when you died, according to the church, your soul was bound either for hell or heaven, either to burn or live in paradise forever. However, to get to hell, you had to commit a pretty grievous sin, what was known as a mortal sin, something defiantly against God, For the rest of us who hadn't committed a mortal sin, we were going to go to heaven. But first, we had to have our earthly sins purged. And that was done in that place called Purgatory. My favorite description of Purgatory, I think, is probably the one in the Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri. He envisions Purgatory as a mountain. A mountain spiraling up towards heaven. After death, your soul went to that mountain of purgatory. And while it ascended that mountain to get to heaven, it underwent several trials, seven of them in fact, that were intended to purge away the seven deadly sins. So that when you got to the top and were able to enter heaven, your soul would be clean enough to bask in the glory of God. So purgatory wasn't a particularly nice place. It wasn't as bad as hell, but it wasn't a place that you necessarily wanted to be. So the church had these indulgences that the Pope could grant to you that would allow your soul to skip over that unpleasant step known as purgatory. At certain times, the church was known to sell these indulgences for money. This was the Rome, a Rome of lavish luxury and extreme decadence, a Rome that was seen by many to be swindling its parishioners by lying to them about being able to get them into heaven for money, This was the Rome that at the end of a very long journey was first encountered by Martin Luther. Martin Luther was one of tens of thousands of people that would make a pilgrimage to Rome every year, many of them members of the clergy in an effort to find themselves closer to God. Martin Luther was taking this journey on the advice of a higher-up in his order who had suggested he do so because Martin Luther was a very troubled young monk. He always found himself somewhat distant from the presence of God that he hoped to feel. In fact, Martin Luther had had a very troubled youth in general. His father was a member of a growing middle class in Germany who, by all accounts, was not a very kind man. However, he did send his son Martin off to the university, a fairly respected university, where he was supposed to train to become a lawyer, and for a while he did so, and a lot of those skills that he learned there would wind up serving him well later on in life. But... After a run-in with the plague, in which many of his friends died, and then a near-death experience on a lonesome road during a very violent thunderstorm, Martin Luther decided to dedicate himself to God. However, after becoming a monk and going through all of those ordeals, he never felt himself truly in the presence of God. He never felt God's love fill him. The church taught him that to feel God's love, there were two ways about it. One was doing good works, which were good works according to the church, things that the church decreed you should do. The other was through suffering and penance. And Martin Luther did plenty of good works, but also undertook suffering and penance on a level that was, well, it was dangerous. He would wear those horsehair shirts with the hair on the inside that would become extremely uncomfortable all the time. He would flagellate himself until he had nearly bled to death. More than once, his brothers had to pull him in from the cold, where he was outside, nearly nude, freezing to death, trying with all of his might to feel the presence of God through suffering. And yet, Martin Luther never did feel the presence of God, not in his heart. So it was suggested that he take this pilgrimage to Rome, and he did. It took about two months to get from his monastery to Rome. But upon arriving in Rome, well, this was the height of the Italian Renaissance. When he arrived in Rome, literally, Michelangelo was painting the roof of the Sistine Chapel. Raphael was painting the Pope's apartments and decorating them in lavish ways. There were some of the greatest artists and thinkers and architects of all time living and working in Italy, especially in Rome, at this time when Martin Luther got there. Not only was Rome culturally significant to Europe in a way that Martin Luther was only beginning to grasp, this was the center of church power. This was the center of God's house. This was where God was closest to earth and spoke directly to the Pope, the leader of the Catholic Church to which Martin Luther had dedicated himself. At first, Martin Luther was in awe of all of the majesty and grandeur around him as I imagine anybody would be arriving in Italy at about the time of the height of the Italian Renaissance. But soon, that veneer and that awe began to fade. One of Martin Luther's first destinations, as a man who saw suffering as the best way to get closer to God, was a crypt in which the remains of thousands of martyrs were kept. However, when he arrived at this crypt, he learned that he would have to pay a fee to enter, and see the remains of these martyrs, which he did, and that earned him an indulgence, a token that would let him lessen his time in purgatory. And that was just the beginning. At a sermon that an understandably timid Martin Luther was giving in Rome in front of many very august members of the clergy, he overheard one of them say, just get on with it. This was Martin Luther's experience time after time at nearly every site he visited on his pilgrimage to Rome. And so he returned to Germany, even more disillusioned than he had gone to Rome. He began to feel that there was something wrong with him. In his writings, he would frequently ask, what's wrong with me? Why can't I feel God's love? And so in 1511, not having shown any improvement after Rome, he was sent to Wittenberg, a town in Germany that had just built a new university and had a couple of small churches attached to the castle. There was also a leader in Martin Luther's order there who was someone who knew how to handle Martin Luther. After getting to know him a bit, he decided to make Martin Luther a professor of Bible studies at the Theological University there. At first, Martin Luther protested. He gave a number of reasons why he couldn't do it. One of them being that the amount of work added to his schedule would kill him. To which this leader replied, that's okay. God has much use for clever men in heaven. He always knew just what to say to Martin Luther. And so, Martin Luther became a teacher forced to leave his world of meditation and suffering and penance and interact with the world. He had to look these students in the eye and tell them with authority what the word of God said. To do this, he studied not only the Latin Bible, but he went back further to study the Greek texts and the Hebrew texts. And it was while studying these texts that he began to see discrepancies in what the Bible originally taught and what the church was preaching in the year 1511. He realized, digging through these ancient texts, that, well, to him, what the church was teaching was wrong. The way to get to God wasn't by penance or doing good works. The way to get to God for him was by opening his heart and his hands and allowing God's love in. But in the years that passed, between the time that he went to Rome and the time that he started teaching, the old pope had died, and they had chosen a new pope, a man named Leo X. Leo If I were to picture a movie about Martin Luther, I would picture someone who was young and fresh-faced and innocent and ever curious. And if I were to picture Leo X, I would picture a man who was cold-eyed and stern beyond belief and at the same time enjoyed his earthly delights to a sumptuous extent. I would also imagine that every time he were on screen, there would be dark, ominous music accompanying his arrival something that lets you know that an evil presence had arrived. No, I'm not saying that that's how the relationship between Martin Luther and Leo X actually was, but that's definitely how it's been recorded and seen throughout the ages ever since this time. You see, as Pope, Leo was not exactly careful with money. He went on these extravagant boar hunts, he threw these huge dinner parties at which it was reported at the time by people who, it should be said, were not pro the papacy, but they reported that there would be young naked boys jumping out of pies to entertain all of the guests at the Pope's dinner parties. It was said even, and this is not necessarily proven to be true, but that he vetoed a decree that a bishop had made that said that there should be a limit on the number of young boys that the clergy could keep for their comfort. Now, this all may be propaganda against him, there's no definitive proof of it, but this was something that was believed at the time. More to the point, something that can be proven is that within two years of having been raised to the papacy, the coffers of the church were empty. Now this was due not just to his lavish parties and boar hunts, but to the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica. You see, all of the great architects and painters and sculptors in Rome and in Italy were there working on St. Peter's Basilica, and they did not come cheap. So in the year 1517, in order to raise some more money to complete the work on St. Peter's Basilica, Leo X began a campaign of new indulgences. These indulgences were far more inclusive than any indulgences ever had been before. They were also made much more available than any other indulgences. Before, you would have to prove that you had done good works to get your indulgence. Now, all you had to do was pay a little money and you could get these indulgences. And they covered all sorts of sins, sins that even people who believed in indulgences thought were just ridiculous. It was even said by people who opposed these indulgences, it should be noted, that these indulgences would allow someone to be forgiven for raping the Virgin Mary. However, these indulgences of the 1517 campaign raised in today's dollars millions and millions of dollars. There was a man... a a bishop known as Johann Tetzel, that was put in charge of the campaign of these indulgences. He's seen today by historians as a master marketer, somebody who came up with even clever little jingles to sell these indulgences. One of them was heard to say, "...when the coin in his coffer rings, then the soul heavenward wings." And that was all it took. Just a little bit of coin, and your soul, which would be going to purgatory after death, would be able to skip over that nasty little step and go right into heaven, no matter what you had done, according to these indulgences. Beyond that, one of the big problems that many people had with this 1517 indulgence campaign was that before, you had to earn an indulgence during your life. But now, if you wanted to buy an indulgence for somebody who had died, say, your mother had passed away and you didn't want her to suffer in purgatory. You could just give the church just a little bit of money and all of a sudden she would go straight to heaven. These indulgences were widely hated all throughout Europe, no more so than in Germany, which had become the prime market to sell these indulgences. Martin Luther himself had noted that many in his congregation, including his students, had stopped coming to his services and stopped coming to class because they had been told that all they had to do to reach heaven was to pay the church a little bit of coin. This understandably, enraged Martin Luther. The story of what's to come is really a turning point in the history of Western civilization. Because of the importance of it, the crux of that story, the thing that really set this fire off, is usually told in very melodramatic ways. It's told as if it's an epic tale, almost something you would see in an adventure movie. If this were a scene in that movie about Martin Luther I was talking about earlier, this scene would have to begin with very dark, brooding, and epic music. October 31st, 1517, All Hallows' Eve. In the small town of Wittenberg, a young monk by the name of Martin Luther has learned that the church is interfering with his flock. They are being lied to, told that for a small amount of coin they can earn an indulgence, which is putting their immortal souls in danger of eternal damnation. In a rage, Martin Luther flies to his study where he grabs ink, pen, and paper and begins to scrawl out a list of every detestable crime of the Catholic Church and their vile pope, Leo X. Late into the night he works, by candlelight he finishes his 95 theses, detailing everything that the church has done to its people. He grabs his hammer and nail and he rushes to the church in Wittenberg. Standing before the door, he lays the 95 theses upon it, puts his nail in place, raises his hammer, and brings it down. Those inside the church can hear it as the thunder of God. Again he raises his hammer and brings it down, and again. And like Jesus being nailed to the cross, Martin Luther knows that this event will change the history of the Christian church forever. But... Of course, that's not exactly how it happened. If you like that story, and that's how you'd like to continue to think of it, and I wouldn't blame you if you did, it's pretty awesome, I'd go ahead and just skip forward a couple of minutes because I'm about to burst your bubble. Martin Luther was an academic, an educated man. Beyond that, he had been trained as a lawyer. And even more so, he was a monk, so not exactly a rash person. He did occasionally lose his temper, but when he had a chance to stop and think about things, he went about them carefully. And if you were somebody who was trying to get your message across, would you just scrawl out a list of the 95 theses and put them on the church door where the very first priest who saw it in the morning could walk by, see it, scoff, tear it down, and take it to the requisite authorities? That's not what Martin Luther would do, either. What he actually nailed to the church door was the notice of a debate to discuss the 95 Theses, which he had had printed up at a local printing press and passed out to people all throughout the town square, his parishioners, and especially his students. He had too many copies printed up to be just gotten rid of that easily, so that people had to pay attention and had to discuss them. Now, that doesn't make quite as good a story, but it makes a lot more sense when you're actually trying to get your message out there, which Martin Luther did in a way that I don't think even he saw coming. You see, when Martin Luther wrote the 95 Theses, he was still a Catholic priest. His intention wasn't to start a revolution or start a new religion. He even defended the office of the papacy and the power of the church in his theses. Several of the first arguments he makes are actually about how the Pope is, in fact, the conduit of God on earth but his writings caught on in a way that I don't think he or any of the clergy saw coming. Originally, he just wanted to have a discussion about things that the Catholic Church was doing, problems that they had that he thought needed to be addressed, but I think that the people who read the 95 Theses saw them and it spoke to a part of them that was tired of the control of the Catholic Church over their lives. So they took what Luther had said and really kind of ran with it. At first it was the students, Young people and students are frequently the people in history and our modern world that will take a new idea that speaks to them and run with it. They would pass around copies of the 95 Theses as well as other writings by Luther and read them and discuss them in ways that people who were parts of the aristocracy and the respectable members of society probably weren't yet. And this spread throughout all of his region of Saxony, and then further out into Germany, and then into what would be called the Netherlands, and all throughout that northern central region of Europe very quickly. It didn't take long before a copy of the 95 Theses appeared on the desk of Leo X. As you can imagine, the Pope was none too happy. His very first action was to label the writings of Martin Luther heresies. And then he sent a bishop to interrogate Martin Luther about what he was doing up there, During the interrogation, Martin Luther was uncooperative. In his writings later, he was outright dismissive of the bishop who was sent to interrogate him. These actions by the church really galvanized not just Martin Luther, but also his supporters, the young people, and they brought new supporters to his side who saw this as an action that the Catholic Church had no right to undertake. With Martin Luther being so unresponsive to the bishop that they sent to interrogate him, The next action they took was to label Martin Luther himself a heretic, which is a pretty big deal. When you're labeled a heretic, you're told to come back to Rome so that they can discuss your crimes, which, for somebody who was a heretic on the level of Martin Luther, well, that wouldn't have ended well for him. There was another priest about a hundred years before named Jan Hus, who had been in a similar situation. He had written about problems within the Catholic Church, and when labeled a heretic and told to come to Rome to discuss his crimes, he did so. He was subsequently burned at the stake. Martin Luther knew that it was a bad idea for him to go there. However, in most places, that wouldn't have been up to him. If the church and the pope requested your presence, then you'd better go, and if you didn't of your own volition, then the local authorities would collect you, arrest you, and send you down to Rome. However, in the town of Wittenberg, things were a little bit different. There was a noble who's known today as Friedrich the Wise. He enjoyed the publicity, that Martin Luther's writings were bringing to his small town, as well as the university. Friedrich was the one who founded that university, and he saw this as not only good advertisement and good press, but also something that would make the town of Wittenberg remembered forever, which, frankly, it kind of has been. He decided to protect Martin Luther and not order his men to collect and arrest him. This was, of course, very good news for Martin Luther, who was able to print up more and more copies of his 95 Theses, as well as new pamphlets that were becoming less and less the writings of a good Catholic priest, and more and more the writings of someone who was in open protest against the Church. Some of these writings would get subsequently dirtier and dirtier, painting the Pope in a light that was almost evil. There are woodcuts from some of Martin Luther's publications, painting the pope as a a pig. There is a woodcut, which I'm very fond of, that has on the left side a picture of Christ washing a beggar's feet, above it labeled Christus, and next to it the pope, Leo X, having his feet kissed, above it labeled Antichristus. This had gone beyond simply some complaints about the church to really open rebellion. If this was a rebellion, Martin Luther had a lot on his side. Aside from just the people that supported him, as well as the local nobility, he had things that many people that had come before him didn't have, most notably the printing press. He was able to publish not just copies of his 95 theses, but pamphlets that amounted to just propaganda against the church frequently and distribute them all over Europe. This made it impossible for the church to quash any of his writings, no matter how many of them they collected and burned. In addition to that, there was a force that was beginning to grow in European society that was new to the European experience. They were really, for the first time, beginning to develop a middle class, a merchant class, people who had plenty of money and a fair amount of power without being connected to either the nobility or the church, which led them to be really some of the first democratic reformers in Europe. They were looking for a measure of self-rule that none of their ancestors had really had before. And perhaps most importantly, Luther had something inside him, an internal resolve that compelled him to keep fighting no matter the odds that faced him. Despite all that, the Catholic Church was still the most powerful organization in the Western world. Luther knew just how unstable his footing was. So he took steps, necessary steps, to ensure that he would be able to continue fighting the power of the Catholic Church. He wrote a pamphlet, a pamphlet to the Christian nobility of the German people. This pamphlet argued, quote, German money in defiance of nature flies over the Alps. This argument held a lot of weight to the German nobility. The Holy Roman Empire was a Catholic empire, and their emperor, Charles V, was a Catholic man. However, ever since the time of the Roman Empire, there had been a tension between the Romans and the German people. Even at the height of of the Roman Empire, there was a heresy long before the heresy of Martin Luther, known as the Arian heresy, in which German Christians disagreed with the way that the Roman Church believed in God. And this cultural schism had never really gone away. Even after the founding of the Holy Roman Empire, when the German peoples were allied strongly with the Roman Church, there was tension between them. So it made sense to the German nobility in the Holy Roman Empire that their money should belong to the German people and not the Pope in Rome. Now, it seems to me, with a friend in a high place like Frederick the Wise, he may have helped Martin Luther craft his argument to the German nobility. He would know better than a monk what arguments would work best to motivate the German nobility to protect this burgeoning Lutheran movement. And it seemed to work. Many other nobles took heart from this and really joined arms with Frederick the Wise and the Lutheran cause. However, the man that they really had to convince was Charles V, a young 19-year-old newly raised Holy Roman Empire who was staunchly Catholic. But in 1520, Charles V visited Frederick the Wise who convinced him to hear Luther's case, which was just in time because in Rome, the Pope had issued an order of excommunication for Martin Luther. Excommunication was the most powerful weapon the Pope had in his arsenal to fight a heretic like Martin Luther. And he sent a bishop north with the bull of excommunication, stopping at every town he passed to read the excommunication of Martin Luther to let anybody who might have any sympathy for the Lutheran cause know that this was going to be nipped in the bud shortly. However, the further north he got, across the Alps, and into the Holy Roman Empire, and into the region known as Germany, the less and less sympathy the bishop found. He would find that every time he would pass around copies of the Bull of Excommunication, they would be torn or burned or even thrown into the river. Martin Luther's movement was growing, and it was growing even beyond Lutheranism. This had turned from a religious argument into a social argument. It had gone beyond whether or not the Romans just had religious control over the people of Germany to whether or not the Romans had any right to the political control over the people of Germany. And that middle class we talked about earlier, along with the peasantry, began to revolt. Some of these revolts were more peaceful. Some of them were more violent. Some of them were outright rebellion against their overlords. However, Martin Luther fanned the flames of rebellion. You see, after his many other publications, he published perhaps his best-selling work of all time, which makes him possibly the best-selling author at the time. He published a Bible in German, a language that the common people could read. You see, Bibles had always been published in Latin. And Martin Luther, who had read the texts of the Greek and the Hebrew, was able to translate the Bible from a language that the Bible was actually written in. So these people were able to read a Bible in their own language without the filter of the Catholic Church. And what they found out, finally able to read the Bible for themselves, was that what the Catholic Church was teaching them was not exactly the teachings of the Holy Bible. This enraged the people, along with the many other cultural forces pushing them to overthrow the old order. Germany was in chaos. Germany was in chaos. The Netherlands were in chaos. The Low Countries were in chaos. Switzerland was in chaos. Essentially, the way that Europe had worked for the past thousand years was turned on its head, all due to the publication of a Bible, a Bible that the people could actually read. However, Martin Luther wasn't the first man to publish a Bible in the language that the common people could read. There were a couple of other people before him that had done this. However, they didn't publish the Bible in German, they published the Bible in English. In the 14th century, there was a monk in England. His name was John Wycliffe. He had a lot of similarities to Luther. First of all, he was a monk. He was also a philosopher, much like Luther, and he also taught at the seminary academy. This was something that brought Luther to his realization and I think also had a large influence on Wycliffe. He had other similarities to Luther, philosophical similarities. He believed, much like Luther, that the focus of religious teaching should not be on good works but on a personal relationship with God and that people should be allowed to have a personal interpretation of the Bible, not an interpretation that has been filtered through a Catholic medium. He was also, in many ways, against some of the things that make the very Catholic Church the Catholic Church. Things like the sacrament, or the existence of sainthood, or the very existence of the papacy at all. He was, in many ways, much more radical than Martin Luther was when he started out. And in 1380, he started perhaps the most radical thing that he had done yet, a translation of the Bible, into English. Unlike Luther, however, he translated the Bible directly from the Latin. Now, this may have been out of a respect for the Bible, but it may have been because he didn't have access to the original Greek and Hebrew texts. He also decided to translate the Bible directly, word for word, from the Latin, which created a lot of strange translations that I imagine even native English speakers at the time had trouble understanding. For example... Quote, I forsooth, and the Lord thy God, a strong jealous, End quote. or perhaps, quote, Lord, go from me, for I am a man sinner. End quote. Now, these are of course lines from the Bible that you may be familiar with, but not in a familiar vernacular, largely because they weren't written in a way that people were necessarily able to read—at least not easily. Wycliffe had built a movement around his beliefs that actually gained a lot of strength in Europe. However, the Pope quashed that movement as hard as possible, and within just a few years after Wycliffe's death, nearly every copy they could get their hands on had been burned, and his followers all arrested. However, even today, 170 copies of this Bible still exist, and this was in a time before the printing press. All of these copies were written by hand in monasteries by English monks. So there must have been a large desire to have a copy of this manuscript. For so many to still exist, that's almost unheard of. But he wasn't the last English monk to translate the Bible. Others took his translation, tried to make it a little more readable, and they continued publishing them and passing them around, much like Martin Luther passed around his 95 Theses. It was a clandestine activity that people who believed the power of the Catholic Church was too strong and too influential in their nation of England While they were trying to undermine it, quietly but as powerfully as possible. And this continued even up until the time of Henry VIII. Henry VIII collected every copy of the Wycliffe Bible he could get his hands on, as well as any subsequent translation, and had them burned in a massive bonfire right outside St. Paul's Cathedral that lasted for two days solid. And this was only one of many burnings of these heretical Bibles. And then came another monk, a man named William Tyndale. There's a quote from William Tyndale to another monk that I'm very fond of, and I'd like to share with you now. Quote Ere many years I will cause a boy that drive a plough to know more of the scriptures than thou dost End quote. This was saying that he wanted the people in his country to know the actual scriptures and the word of God and not have it fed to them by a third party. And unlike John Wycliffe, Tyndale translated the Bible from the Hebrew and the Greek, not the Latin. Now Tyndale's Bible isn't exactly the King James version of the Bible, but it very nearly is. About 85% of Tyndale's Bible is directly in the King James version. They made some changes and got some stuff out of the Bible that the kingdom didn't really think needed to be in there for the common people to see, but it's very, very close to what's in the King James Bible. However, Tyndale was not able to do his work of translation and essentially sedition in England. Because the king in England at the time, Henry VIII, was a Catholic and a defender of the Catholic faith. That wasn't going to last. It wasn't until after Tyndale's death, unfortunately. But Henry VIII, of course, eventually recanted his Catholic faith. You see, his first wife had not given him a son. This was something that any monarch, especially a king, found vitally important to have a strong heir that he knew could succeed him on the throne. There were, of course, many other factors and many other tensions building between Henry VIII and the Catholic Church, but this one really set it off because Henry VIII, as we all probably know, believed that it was his wife's fault that he couldn't have a son. He had, of course, a daughter. However, unable to divorce her, He cut ties with the Catholic Church and married another woman. This woman was not a Catholic because neither was Henry VIII. Neither was Henry's second daughter that that marriage produced. But of course, Henry eventually married another woman with whom he had a son. Finally, Henry VIII had a son and heir that he knew would succeed him. However, Henry VIII was a pragmatic man. So he set rules of succession that were anything untoward to happen to his son, his daughter would take the throne, his eldest daughter, as it happens, who was the product of a Catholic marriage and herself a Catholic woman. For a newly Anglican country, this potentially spelled disaster. But Henry had another daughter, the product of an Anglican marriage, who was, by all accounts, bright, even brilliant, who was ambitious, who was extremely resilient, and who would make a great focus and figurehead for the growing Protestant movement in England. We'll talk about her next week, about her turbulent ascension to power, about the internal struggles that she overcame to become one of the most powerful monarchs in Europe. And her daring campaign to defy both the Pope and the Spanish Empire to rival their claim on the monopoly of a new world empire, a feat for which she employs gentlemen adventurers with names like Sir Walter Raleigh and Sir Francis Drake. But that'll do it for this week, everybody. Thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And I hope that I didn't offend anybody's religious sensibilities by talking about what is, still for a lot of people, a very controversial and emotional topic. It was my intent that, even while discussing a lot of negative things, to try and be as balanced and honest as possible. So hopefully you'll tune in next week. Our theme music this week was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, I really think you might enjoy them, so why not go on over and check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not go on over to piratehistorypodcast.com and leave a comment or a question if you have any. And then if you're going over to Twitter, follow us at Black Flagcast or like us on Facebook. Have a little bit of we really appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much for listening.